Athletes in the Arts podcast, hosted by Stephen Karaginas and Yasi Ansari. Hello, hello everyone. It's once again time for the Athletes in the Arts podcast, along with Yasi Ansari. I'm Stephen Karaginas. We welcome you to our first show of 2024. So if you like our episode or just want to feel philanthropic, please drop a rating or a review or any form of affirmation you can send online. Much appreciated. We also want to thank our sponsor, School Health, for their support. Check them out at schoolhealth.com for your medical needs. If you want more information on athletes in the arts, such as resources, papers, links, research, and more, please go to athletesandthearts.com. Now, for our episode today, we are talking with one of the preeminent psychology researchers in the United States, Dr. Tomian Roberts. Now, for the last 30 years as a professor at Colorado College, she has done monumental work examining the sexualization and objectification of women in society, something that applies in dance. She was part of writing the American Psychology Association Task Force on the Sexualization of Girls in 2008. She's been an advocate in the dance world for over a decade and is currently on the board of NEMA, or Nonprofit Education and Advocacy for the Movement Arts. She's also published research on the effects of social media on dancers, particularly the benefits of a social media cleanse or fast. Now, I know what you're thinking. Doesn't the United States have laws against torturing their own citizens for research? Well, it turns out that asking young citizens to voluntarily stay off social media for a short period of time is not a crime. And as it turns out, it has many surprising benefits. It's incredible stuff, actually, and we want to dig in more with her. It's incredible stuff, actually, and we want to dig in more with her today. Just a side note, though, we will not be talking about abuse or sexual acts, but we will be talking about how young dancers are sexualized and objectified, so this is a trigger warning just in case. So, Dr. Tommy Ann Roberts, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. So I've known you for a long time, uh, various projects and work, but you've been working at the same college for 30 years as a professor in psychology. So well, the first thing I wanted to find out is like as a full-time researcher and professor teaching psychology, what is like your your week-to-week, day-to-day kind of life like? I mean, how how much are you teaching, research projects, how much, how, how does all that work for you? Sometimes I wonder how that all works for me, to be frank. I I work at a small four-year liberal arts college, and so we only offer undergraduate degrees. Um, And for that reason, Colorado College is a very... um, it's a very teaching focused institution. And so it's the kind of place where um, students have really good faculty to student ratios in their courses and so on. Um, And so I, I teach my head off. I do a lot of teaching, but one of the great things about where I work is that my teaching and my, and my research get to sort of almost be one and the same. So I sponsor, um, I have students join me in helping me do uh, big research projects, some of the projects I'm sure we'll talk about today, mm-hmm. but also um, students themselves, especially the more high achieving honor students in their senior year will uh, develop ideas for their own senior thesis research project. And so my working with them is is this wonderful way of combining um, teaching, pedagogy, here's how you can be a psychology researcher, but also, 
you know, collaborating in many ways with them um, to see a project through. So I, I do everything all the time. I have a very high teaching load, but also as I'm trying to explain, I guess I'm, I'm, I have the great good fortune to have excellent students and time to do research projects with them. So what sparked your interest in teaching? Why did you get into this field? Yeah, I when I myself was an undergraduate, I have this really vivid memory of um, it was the beginning of my senior year. I went to Smith College. Uh, I had an appointment with uh, my faculty advisor. Um, I was a work-study kid, and I did a lot of research projects as part of my work-study. After I got out of the dining hall kitchen for my work-study job, I was able to do psychology research um, for work-study. And I remember um, having a meeting with my professor and just sort of picking his brain about maybe even the question that Dr. Stephen just asked me, sort of, what is your life like? How, How is it? to do this career. And it struck me as something that allowed me to balance. I'm in, in my heart of hearts, I'm quite an extroverted performer. I spent a lot of time, um, in the theater. Uh, I, I did a, I was pursuing that kind of a career. Um, I had a kind of crappy thing happen to me, um, that derailed that. And then I thought, Oh, well, you know, teaching and, and mentoring students, is a way of, um, it's a way of performing and also interacting in that performance. It's a way of sharing and co-creating cool things. So yeah, that's probably why. So back when I was doing uh, psychology in undergrad uh, about 30 years ago, right when you started, uh, the hot topic back then was like biopsychology uh, and also decision processing. I did some research in those fields there. So these days in psychology, what, I mean, there's obviously with AI and social media and all these different things we'll talk about, like what are the new hot topics that are, people are looking at in the psychology world for research? Right. Well, what's so amazing, psychology as a field, of course, started in the late 1800s when Professor William James, the philosopher at Harvard University, said, maybe we need to branch off of philosophy and make a field of study that's about the human experience and that we can bring kind of scientific research methods to. Um, And ever since its beginnings, psychology has kind of had two branches. One of those branches would be what I would call the functional branch. What Those are the kind of like why questions, and those are the questions that I've always been interested. And the other branch is the what branch. And that branch, as you mentioned, Dr. Stephen, with bi- the word biopsychology, that branch has become what we now call neuroscience. Um, and because in, you know, gosh, it's hard for me to believe in in the 30 years that I've been doing this, how many advances we have in the technologies that can enable the neuroscience wing of the business to now collaborate with the functional wing of the business. So now we can do things like functional MRI. We can have people's brains and bodies uh, scanned while they are doing psychological processes, while they're thinking problems through, while they're making decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I would say that a lot of the hot topics have have come around partially because of 
the kind of technologies that we're able to use to collect our data. So what is your next research project coming up? Yeah, I ha- I've always got, <laughs> I'm always juggling several projects, but the I would say that for me, my projects always fall under the same umbrella. Um, I once... I I found a little book when I was an undergrad, and the book was called Ways of Seeing. I was taking an art history course, and this was a small volume I recommended to anybody listening. Go out, spend five bucks to get the paperback copy of John Berger's Ways of Seeing. And this was a game changer for me. Um, This book was published in the 70s, and this art historian said that... um, we we look at the world um, and we look at art with a kind of subject-object perspective. And one of the chapters in this book said that we look at women's bodies particularly in a way that treats those bodies as objects of our scrutiny. And you look all around and from from the fine art of the Titians nude in in a museum to um, a ballet performance to a common advertisement for beer, we see that women's bodies are, as he called it, objectified. And so I that little book really sparked my interest in figuring out whether or not I could be I could bring psychological research to bear on that question. What's it like not only to look at bodies in that way, but then also what's it like to know that your body is being looked at in that way? Do you start to internalize that perspective on yourself? Does that internalization then become the primary way that you think about who you are and why you're a valuable contributor to the world? And what would be the psychological you know, consequences and benefits of that? And so my research has, ever since that little book, (laughs) my research has really been about those kinds of questions. And and it still is, still is. (laughs) Is it more of an innate uh, way of uh, male to female gaze as far as objectification, or is it more learned behavior? Is it a mixture of both? Yeah. Um, As a social psychologist, I would argue that it's uh, learned behavior, absolutely. It may be because some of the work that I've done argues that, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why we tend to sexually objectify the female body. Um, And it may be because, I mean, somebody might make an evolutionary argument that, I don't know, for heterosexual reproductive value, you have to look at this body as an object. You know, I just, I don't tend to buy it. I do think that um, we we all conspire to to create a world where we say that even I I even have to correct myself from saying to my two year old granddaughter, "You look so pretty," right? right? We all conspire to reward and to think about girls' main value as lying in their appearance. And if we tried to not do that, what could happen? Other things might happen, right? 
I believe that um, that objectification and sexualization isn't something that only happens to people. It's something that we unwittingly do. And our research shows that, <clears throat> for example, when we when we show people uh, videos from YouTube of young dancers moving in highly sexually subjective ways, that viewers, without meaning to, make assumptions about those dancers as having a little bit less humanity. When we view dancers who move in highly sexualized ways, we're more likely to presume, oh, that's a dancer who, if they had an injury, they wouldn't be as hurt. That's a dancer who, if they were a victim of a bullying scenario, it might have been their fault. Mm -hmm. We don't mean to do this. We do it. So the, the consequences of objectification are, are, are not about us having our full, we don't have full control over our, of our, over our implicit biases, right? That's why they're implicit. We, we do this right. in other realms, Football players are very objectified, right? They're almost mm -hmm. like chess pieces on a, on a field. Football players get bought and sold and traded. We then begin to think about the bodies, many of them black, of football players as just sort of not quite as human as other bodies because of that way of looking at, at what they do and what they stand for and what their, what their job and their body is all about. So this kind of process has been developing, it seems like more so that even with more awareness of this issue, it seems like it's becoming more and more prevalent in like aspects of, especially now with gambling involved in sports, especially with the propagation of video and, uh, and, and social media sharing of videos and dancers. Um, the fact that dancers don't get paid hardly for anything they do professionally. Um, is that what you're seeing as well, that we seem to be reinforcing this, 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 this problem over and over again? Absolutely. I, I would definitely say that, again, sort of the other thing about being a psychologist is you have to keep your, your you feel like you're running several steps behind the latest ways that people mm -hmm. can objectify and self-objectify. And obviously with social media, I can remember many years ago when the American Psychological Association invited me to join a task force on the sexualization of girls. Um, the main thing we were concerned about back in those days were these uh, sort of toddlers and tiaras, these beauty pageants, right? Um, and the thing that that has now happened with a 24-7 news media feed and with... Um, Many people whose, whose work and passion is about how they move their, and use their body, being told that they have to brand themselves, they have to get people to keep looking at them, right? Now we have in the hands of very young people a device that's going to enable them to self-objectify. And they do it willingly because that's where they're going to be able to get the likes and the the, the currency of social media is attention and likes and shares. And so now you're participating with your own self-objectification in this attention economy because that's how you're going to get out there. So we're, this is on steroids now, absolutely. And we see college athletes, dancers, 
all sorts of people whose, whose livelihood and whose passions are about their bodies having to um, engage in a lot of self-objectification. <laughs> so this kind of goes along then with the like recent um, NIL uh, names, image, and likeness uh, uh, decision that was made two years ago where the NCAA now allows uh, athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness. And the way you're framing things right now, it just occurs to me that you're literally in the title of that name, image, likeness. That is literally an objectifying description, isn't it? Absolutely. Literally so. And these and are all people making money off their own name, image, likeness. So the objectification reward, I guess what you're saying is, is, is the money that you're getting paid to do this. So why would this ever even stop them? Why would this ever even stop them, right? So we wow. know in the case of all your research in dance, we know in the increasingly in the case of we're, we're using this example of American football, you know, the kinds of injuries that can happen as we participate in these activities. But what we're only beginning to comprehend are the kinds of mental health injuries that can happen when you're when you are forced time and time again to take a position on your own body that's as an outsider, when you're asked to think more about your name, image, and likeness than your health and well-being. And we find that when people are made to think about how their body peers, they have less access to how their body feels. There's only so many cognitive resources you have. The more you invest in the appearance, the name, image, and likeness, the fewer resources you have when you finally show up to rehearsal or practice to be like, okay, wait a minute, let me check in with myself. So what are you seeing as far as the physical manifestations of sexualization, like, like in young women and dancers, because it seems like sexualization is, I mean, we talk about objectification with athletes, but sexualization is definitely a more concerning issue in the female population, especially in the dance world because of objectification. But from your research, it seems like there are some suggestions that there's actual measurable changes that occur when a woman is being sexualized. Yeah, I, there are. So we have sort of two lines of research. One line that I've spent most of my time in is what happens um, psychologically to those of us who internalize a sexualized or objectified view on our body. What, and what I've just said is one of the things we give up is we, we have fewer cognitive resources to attend to our body's capacities and internal feeling states and so on. And we've, we've got a lot of research to show all of that. We find that the more self-objectification, the less likely a dancer or a performer is to get into the flow of the experience of their body moving. They're so aware of the audience eyes on them that they are less likely to lose themselves in the experience of the moving body itself, which is one of the most delicious spaces to be in, right? When we're lost in the creativity of our movement, that's, that's something that I believe as we sexually and objectify and sexualize young dancers, we're denying them that experience, right? We're making them be only performers and not have the 
the well-being benefits of losing themselves in this activity that they presumably started doing because they loved it, right? Mm -hmm. So we're monetizing and, and objectifying. Okay. But then the other line of research, of course, is how do we as viewers, what assumptions do we make when we are looking at sexualized or sexually objectified um, dancers. And what we're showing, um, again, back to the idea of equipment, we have an eye tracker um, at Colorado College and we have uh, people come in and watch varying, we've come up with a system of uh, choreographing some dance movements that either have a lot of sexualized movements in them or less, sexualized lyrics in the music or less, and then we look at where individuals are looking on the bodies of young dancers in these cases. And then after they viewed the video, they answer some questions about, we say something like, you know, lots of times we get a sense of who a person's like by how their body has moved. And we have them make some um, evaluations. And that's again, where we show that the more highly sexualized the movements and our movements are things like self-touch, mm -hmm. when a dancer touches their own body. Um, one, of the, we, one of our codes is not smiling. And uh, a, a final code that may seem very silly is um, unbroken eye contact with the camera. And the percent of time mm -hmm. that a young dancer is not breaking their eye contact with the camera seems to be associated with more of a view of the dancer as being sexualized and performing only for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and with those three codes, um, greater self-touch, less smiling, and more longer unbroken eye gaze, we are finding that, especially when the dancer is young, we are finding that our, our viewers want to look away, actually. They defensively look away from the dancer. And when we, when we debrief them later, they say things like, oh, it was very uncomfortable for me. I, I wanted to, I, 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 I needed to look away. What choreography is about having the audience be so uncomfortable that they look away? That sounds like more like types of movements and things that are like almost age inappropriate, right? I mean, you're talking about like 10-year-olds trying to act like 15-year-olds and yeah. 12 year olds doing things that like a college dance or, or always a woman who's went through puberty are just doing. So it sounds like there may be an issue with how age appropriate some of these movements are that are being trained, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of what my, my work as a psychologist is I'm agnostic, right? Um, we can say something like it's immoral, yes, and, and I would agree that it is. It's immoral to train young girls to dance in a way that implies that they are adult uh, sexual beings. But what I wanna do as a psychological scientist is give you evidence that it's not right. good. It's not good for the girls themselves. And it turns out even a young, young seeming dancer who's making these kinds of movements individuals who are viewing those make the same kind of dehumanized and objectifying uh, uh, attributions about that young girl as they would make of an adult. And we don't want that. Mm -mm. So, Dr. Tomi Ann, how do you 
identify how like the self-perception of the dancers? Is there like research that goes into how a dancer perceives themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot. Um, My colleague and I uh, published a paper that we titled Objectification Theory back in 1997. And this theory paper has since launched thousands and thousands of studies um, looking at uh, mostly the the consequences of self-objectification. And there's quite a bit of research done specifically on dancers. Um, We do know that dancers suffer from the consequences of self-objectification, such as eating disorders at higher rates. So Mm -hmm. one of the downstream consequences of thinking about yourself as valuable only in terms of how you appear might be something like restricting your eating so that you appear (laughs) the thin, acceptable shape, right? Um, And so there are lots and lots of studies, not most of them have not been done by me, but um, from all over the world that have looked specifically at the dance world and at how, what are the consequences of self-objectification starting to internalize that point of view? Um, And uh, I'm just going to give a little plug for an organization that Dr. Stephen and I are a part of, NEMA. Um, and uh, dancer um, Keanu Ushida and I, um, my students, are working on developing a hub or a library of resources on exactly these kinds of studies. We want people to be able to access the research that shows the sorts of consequences that can happen when we objectify or sexualize and then when we self-objectify or self-sexualize. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening, NEMA stands for Nonprofit Education and Advocacy for the Movement Arts. So um, something I wanted to, to ask about was why specifically dance for you? Like, why did you get into the dance world? And I'm going to share a little bit, like hearing you talk, I'm just like listening and I don't even know what to say because I grew up in the dance world And I remember going to competitions and everyone had a different dance style and certain dance styles were given more praise and more awards. And, um, and I feel like in our little dance group in San Jose, California, you know, we all grew up a certain way and we never really had those kind of same movements or the same eye contact or, um, you know, and, and so I, I just think back and I'm like, whoa, that's like, that's crazy because what we wanted to change was our bodies or we felt like we weren't as um, talented as another company mm. studio. And yeah, I just have so many questions, but let's start sure. there. Like, I right. And so, and so you had happened to you what we have shown in our research, which is uh, some years ago we went and we collected some of the top uh, choreographers in Los Angeles. And we went and we found these 10 top choreographers who work with young people in L.A., right? And we, and we found what were the YouTube videos that had the most likes and shares and so on, right? And what were the videos from those same choreographers that had the fewest likes and shares? 
And just as maybe you noticed when your San Jose group showed up to these conventions, as you might predict, those videos that had millions of more likes were the ones that our little codes of sexualization showed up more in those videos. So people like that more. And here you were a young dancer and your group showed up and you're like, wait a minute, all of the claps and all of the winning choreography involves these kinds of movements. And, and you felt like it sounds, Yasi, as though you took that on yourself. You said, oh, we're not doing it right. Right. Quote, quote, right, right. right. Square yeah. quotes, right. Square <laughs> quotes, right. Yeah. And a part of me wonders um, if, you know, I even um, I was going to say when it was because I, I grew up in a very I don't want to call it religious, but it was very it was just like my parents never they were very conservative. And so um, they were first generation Americans. And we when I was watching certain artists perform, it was like, oh, my God, I don't want to watch this with my dad. But this is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, I'm like, oh my gosh, like even today I still feel the same way. But now compared to like what I, I have visions of Britney Spears dancing with her snake. I loved Britney Spears back in the 90s. But now dancing with your snake. Dancing with your snake. But now it's a little it's it's gone. It's there's so many changes since it was dancing with a snake, right? Like there's dancing with a snake is not a big deal anymore. Now it's it's almost like we've become so used to a certain dance style and that's what we're expecting and if we don't see that we're like wait that person's modest and that person mm -hmm. is yeah not I think that one of the things that i'm proud of in with my research and my students is yes when we were coding some of these youtube videos there are some egregious examples right where you'd have a male and a female young dancer sort of simulating sex acts as part of what, right? And right. we had um, simulations of masturbation, right? Putting your hands on your genitals specifically. Um, and those are easy for us all to recognize and say, oh, I don't want my dad to see this, right? But the part that I think we need to attend to are these far more seemingly subtle movements, self-touch, unbroken eye gaze, not smiling, not having the sense that the dancer is lost in their dance. And maybe that seems foolish to you, but I would argue that it's a lot easier for us to be able to name these more egregious examples. And then when we do that, we lose track of the fact that there are far more subtle movements that we're asking young dancers to do that are over time, it's more like death by a thousand cuts, right? Over time, that young dancer is thinking, this is the best way to dance. So how did you get involved in dance then with your research? You got so much yeah. going on in that realm. Where did like, did you get drawn in? How did you get drawn into that field? Yes, well, um, as I said, I served on the American Psychological Association Task Force on the Sexualization of Girls. And back in those days, it was all about beauty pageants. Um, mm -hmm. We had, you know, these terrible 
examples of toddlers and tiaras and so on. Um, and all of a sudden, I would say it, it shortly after we published our report, suddenly there were a lot of these shows coming on television. This was still before the internet and still before social media. And the shows were things like, so you think you can dance. Um, and suddenly the dance world, I don't think those of us who weren't involved in it understood that there was such a thing as dance competitions. I had no idea that existed. Yeah. Um, and we start to see this is a realm where there's a lot of publicly available material then we have the internet, we have YouTube, publicly available material um, uh, with young people dancing. Um, and so that was a big shift in how we were seeing sexualization. And um, I got a phone call from uh, a dance educator and former dancer in Los Angeles. Her name was Leslie Scott. Uh, she literally called me um, in my office and she, I think it was 2000 and seven, maybe when I got the phone call, she had read this task force report and she was getting increasingly concerned about sexualization kind of limiting the, the dance world. She felt as though it was limiting creativity. Like these were the only kinds of choreography that was being done. Everything was starting to look right. the same. And yeah. she was concerned about that. And she called me out of the blue. And so that really was my introduction to um, getting involved in applying this research in the world of, of dance. We'll be right back after this message. Founded in 1957, School Health Corporation has been dedicated to helping school-based health professionals keep their students healthy for athletic performance. As a national full-service provider of health supplies and services, School Health's comprehensive offerings include hydration supplies, prevent heat illnesses, sports medicine, recovery and rehabilitation equipment, and school safety infographics for our athletes and the arts community. School Health provides more than just products and resources for performing artists and musicians. They also offer training, advisory services, and exceptional customer care for those supporting performers on school campuses. For more information, please visit www.schoolhealth.com. And now back to our show. So we see this proliferation of material that's out there, the, the TV shows and all the video uh, that's out there. So that how do you see the rise of social media playing into that with the dance world as far as, because obviously there are some good things about social media as far as communications and, and contact and uh, relationships and those kinds of things. And also just, you know, their way of marketing, but since cause around that time with Leslie uh, in 2007, I mean, social, that's when the iPhone came out. That's, yeah. you know, when uh, Facebook was, uh, was created and established. So how has that trended with this availability of content from all these TV shows? How has social media now affected this landscape? Right. Oh gosh. I mean, how do you, how do I even answer that question? It's affected it in every possible way because now, so if you think about it, if your if your job as a football player or a dancer or whatever, if your job, if your passion is about um, using your body, and then there are times when you are performing, right? You're competing or performing, then there's always, always, or there has been in the past, the backstage moment. 
the performance is over now. I get to come back into myself. I get to walk away. Uh I get to have some time alone with myself until the next time I rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and then bring that performance to the audience. So we have now entered willingly into a 24-7 surveillance culture. So now I never get to say the performance is over because I, I bring it with me. I'm holding my cell phone, right? I, I now have to bring along my name and likeness. Um, even after the performance is over, I cannot let it down. I cannot let it down. I have to now feed, feed the machine. I have to remain, I have to self surveil. I have to allow everyone out there at all times to continue to surveil me. That's I'm, Wow. <laughs> right. Uh, you put it that way, it makes it's, hor- it's pretty terrifying, actually. It's to the point where I, I observe sometimes young people, oh, I don't know, even this is a terrible example, but I, you know, I, I, I have the great good fortune of teaching a course in Italy. So I, I teach courses on emotions and aesthetics, right? And I teach a course in Florence, Italy, and for a month we're we're looking at art and we're and we're embodying the art. We do, you know, we look at sculpture and we dance the sculpture. We do all sorts of things. Um, and I increasingly am, am seeing young people go into a museum like the Uffizi, find the Botticelli room where they saw that some influencer had gone in the Botticelli room, take a picture of all the Botticellis leave the Uffizi and then look at what they just took on their, on their phone Hmm. and not have even maybe not even know how to just be in the room and spend time with the Botticelli. We don't Hmm. know how to do that anymore. Maybe. It's like concerts, right? I mean, you have a concert and everybody in the front, 10 rows has their phone up the whole time. They're looking at their phone through the phone to watch what's happening in front of them. And think of the lost opportunity to be in a room full of people who all wanted to have a two hour experience with this artist and to let it be what it is to be in the present moment. There's no more past and there's no more future in a way once we can document everything at all times, right? And so we don't Mm -hmm. really, if there isn't that, then we don't really recognize the benefits of allowing our body and our spirit to be in an experience that will never happen again. That's right now. You know what's being done right now to educate parents around this? Like, is it supportive for them? Is it impactful when they learn about the research around social media? It's very hard. Um, it, we have a huge generational divide here, right? It's very hard to help parents understand, you know, because we, we young people's relationship to their smart device is it's like a part of their body now it's like a limb you know and we we can't ask young people to cut a limb off 
So I think right now we need some help from, and it's not, I don't have the right language, but we need some help from the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to, why is this on us to figure out? Why is it on us to tell our young people to take a pause, to take a break, to take the device away? Why are we unable to hold these mega corporations accountable for stealing, robbing our young people's attention? Attention is the mm -hmm. only resource you own fully. And we now live in an attention economy and these titans of tech are stealing our children's attention. And they're doing it in such a way that they now own our children more than we do. And we, it, why are we saying that it's up to individual parents and young people to take a break from this? And it's, it's hard as well because some people are monetizing from these experiences online. And so actually there's a lot of people monetizing from yes. these, these experiences. I mean, even as a business owner, I try, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful I was born during a time where, you know, we didn't have phones until we were in high school. And so <laughs> I'm really grateful that I've had that period of time to compare, you know, like just reading a book and going out and playing guess who with your friends, you know, the board game. And so these were such special moments. But I also think back to what the example you gave about, let's say the competitive dancer, they're going, they're performing, and now they're they're coming off stage and they have to talk about the experience on stage or like what they're eating in a day, which I, I cannot handle these what you eat in a day videos. But what you but, eat in a day. Wow. But yeah, and, and I'm a I'm a dietitian that specializes with eating disorders. And so it's it's challenging to see that there's a lot of likes and shares around information that's not always true, but also people have to be on all the time. It's all exhausting. The time. It's yeah. exhausting. All the time. It's the all the timeness that we need to hold the industry accountable for. Of course, these these devices have afforded so many amazing, great things. Absolutely. But they can't be everything. We cannot be self-surveilling and surveilling all the time. That's not fair. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> you don't get to own our attention all the time. Right? There are other things in the world that need to, attention, including the planet itself. So let's say this isn't going to change. I'm just, you know, throwing it out there. Let's say this isn't going to change. And so as a, as someone who's doing all the research in, in this line of work and in social media, what can be done? What can people do? Is there some sort of solution? Like how do we build that balance, a realistic balance for today's yeah. youth? Yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, Leslie and I and uh, two other colleagues published a paper last year where we, um, we had preteen and teen dancers uh, take a three-day break from social media. Uh, and we found that in just three days, 
these young people had significant improvements in self-esteem mm -hmm. and body image. Mm -hmm. We gave them pre-tests about body image and self-image, right? And then they had the fast for three days and then we had them complete those same questionnaires again. Self-esteem is not something that's supposed to move, right? That's something that's supposed to be pretty solid about you. And also, we never said anything in during the part during the period of time where they're taking the break. We're not telling them to pay attention to whether they feel better about their body. Hmm. Nothing, right? But to find to see these unbelievably significant improvements in um, these young people's sense of their bodies, lower body shame and lower body surveillance, it's called, um, after just three days of a break was pretty astonishing to us. Um, and we published the paper. Now, we had a suspicion that the reason why this went as well as it did was because, as I, as I just said previously, if you take a child's cell phone away, they are in a panic, right? How is it that this worked so well? Well, we, with every group of young dancers that we had take the break, right, we had a private WhatsApp little chat for the three days. So let's say 10 young dancers were taking their three-day break. Those 10 young dancers knew that there were nine others doing it too. And every day they posted to that WhatsApp and they said how it was going. And they said amazing things, you know. I had a great conversation with my mom. I looked, oh my out, I looked out the window of the airplane. Mm -hmm. I got my homework done. A lot of them got their homework done. I had a good night's sleep. Incredible things, right? And, mm -hmm. and we, we suspected that part of the reason why this worked so well was that they, they had one another, or at least they knew there were these others. And so right now, um, uh, uh, Professor Jeff Russell at Ohio University and I um, are working with Leslie and my students, and we're doing a follow-up social media break um, with university dancers, so these are now adults, and we have three different conditions of our study. In one case, students are participating, knowing that there, that there are others in the group, and they participate as though they're enrolled in a course, and they share at the end of the day what their first day was like, and then their second day and their third day with one another. They hold each other accountable. In the second condition, the participants are on their own, right? So they're, they're doing this cleanse, they're taking three days off social media, but they don't know anyone else is doing it. And in the third case, we have a control condition where we're having the university dancers simply log their social media engagements. And so with this study, which is ongoing right now, um, we are hoping to, to show that one of the benefits of taking a cleanse is not just giving yourself a three-day break, but it's knowing that you and others are in it together to take this three-day break, right? It uh -huh. can be, you can get a lot of loneliness if you, dis right? We've got FOMO and this and that, right? You're like, oh my God, I'm, oh my God, I'm not checking, I'm not checking. 
And that can make you feel quite lonely. But if you know that others are also not checking and you have the opportunity to speak with them about, oh, girl, keep it up. I know you can do it, right? Then maybe you realize that you can turn to people outside of the social media apps to have social interaction. You can, you can engage directly with people as opposed to posting or looking at postings. Those are very passive activities, right? If, if you know that the others are also taking this three-day break, then they become your cohort. They become the people who you're caring about and who care about you for those three days. So does this need to be part of a curriculum in elementary schools right now? And is that, is there something that's being done to put this into elementary schools? Like how can we We really, we really hope so. Um, We want to, one of, one of Leslie's main goals was, can we get this, um, can we get doing a three day cleanse easy enough to pull off that we can we can empower teachers to help kids do this together. And we really want that. Here's something that really, really infuriated me. When this study was published, all of my colleagues and friends said, oh boy, this study is going to hit big. This is really important. It was crickets. Hmm. It was crickets. And that makes you realize that there are uh, humongous industries that don't want it known that mm-hmm. young children can feel a lot better about their minds and their bodies if you give them three days off social media. I found it astonishing. I publish a lot of research, and, and mostly a finding like this would be all over the place. It'd be all over. I would be getting calls from all kinds of media outlets. Mm-hmm. Not in this case. I wonder if there was a TikTok challenge for it, if what would happen. But I also ah. wonder if I also wonder if you had a TikTok challenge like this, if it would it w- wouldn't get as much engagement because then an app wouldn't allow for it to be seen. Who knows? But I really feel like that would be so beneficial. I think the holidays are a special time because people aren't on social media as much. At least I don't think they are because they're with family or they're traveling. And so when you share that, when you have like a a group, a cohesive group, who's going through the same thing, I almost feel like the holidays are a really great time for that. Yes. Because we're, we're so consumed with our families and, um, and it's just like a slow time of the year. So it allows us to like be more present Absolutely. There's research that shows that in any group, in any in-person group of people, if there are cell phones even on the table, individuals are paying less attention to one another. They're not even on the phone. If the phone is on the table, we see lower empathy. You're less likely to have paid attention and understood what the other people at the table said. So these devices, even if they're in our physical presence, are drawing our attention like a sponge. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It feels like almost like the same kind of situation where like big tobacco 
was proven to have all this research on the harms of smoking, even though people were like, oh, yeah, smoking is bad for you. But what are you going to do? Right. And then they would just smoke for all these decades. And then when it came out that Big Tobacco was saying all this research, knowing full well that they were doing things to make you more addicted to it feels like the same kind of thing. It feels like, you know, even though that there was some talk about it, we all talk about, oh, social media is so bad. I'll let my daughter go on that for more than these many hours and blah, blah, blah. But yet uh, we seem to like not want to see the research that tells us until it's going to be, you know, until at some point where it's just broken. It feels so analogous to that, which is, of course, why I always study history myself. And we look at how things repeat in history all the time. Um, and we're repeating it again with social media, it seems like. We really are. And we need more of these good fMRI data showing that these TikTok, social media, the very, very quick uh, way in which information comes and flashes by is actually part of what we would call neurobiologically the dopaminergic system. So. Right. Young people are getting dopamine hits. That is addiction, right? That's that's a way of thinking about the device addicting us. Also, Dr. Stephen, I was just thinking about, think back to the smoking era, right? Mm-hmm. We, we found out that, uh, that big tobacco was hiding the evidence about cancer. But then we also, secondhand smoke. And my, this thing, finding I just told you about, if the phones are on the table, that's the equivalent of secondhand smoke. Secondhand social media. Yeah. Right. Wow. I didn't think about it that way. You are ignoring, right. And in some ways poisoning those around you because yeah, exactly. Cause yeah. Cause part of your brain's always away is alert to watching your phone light up with a notification. Yes. That's why you have it out there. So you can see if someone, I mean, some folks may have altruistic, like, you know, my daughter's out right now. I need to have my phone out so I can make sure if she needs something. Absolutely. That maybe the, the defense mechanism they put out there to the excuse. Absolutely. But yeah. But I mean, it totally Absolutely. makes sense. And how, I, yeah. it, the, the shift happens when the phones got smart. When, once we have smartphones, right? Because of course, unbelievably cool that our telecommunications got into our own hands so that we could know that our child was safe with a phone call. These are not phones anymore, right? right. They are portals to nonstop, pretty empty images and information and that, right? Now, that's not to say that they can't be used in ways that are really, really important for our own safety and our kids' safety and all that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. it, it, we're so past that. <laughs> I mean, and if it's used, again, like when I'm educating dancers, athletes on how to make social media supportive, we're talking about cleaning out the page, right? So following people that may support your healing from an eating disorder or using like an all, like a body diversity or, you know, um, you know, emphasizing body diversity and images that are not just the same images that they're seeing all the time that's affecting their recovery process. So there, I feel like there's some pros and cons, but the problem is that there needs to be a balance. And I feel like there's no, there's no supportive, it's just like people are not hearing 
the importance of the the balance piece around social media. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, to tie it back to Dr. Stevens' great analogy, mm-hmm. you know, until recently, <laughs> the tobacco companies were just off scot free. Individuals were responsible for quitting smoking. And now we're saying individuals, these young people suffering from an eating disorder are only responsible for diversifying the image that they should look at on their... What? (laughs) Okay, we've got to ask the industry to play their part. Mm -hmm. But first, we need... the, the, The society needs to understand that our cognitive neurobiological attention is a resource just like our heart health and our lung health for smoking, right? This is real. Right. Right. So how, how big tobacco made cigarettes more addictive by changing the chemicals to make your brain more addictive, social media, the companies make it more easier to get the dopamine hit you're getting from that, which we already know has physical with fMRI studies. We understand now there's actually physical manifestations of addiction that this is a cause this causes. So, yeah, this is pretty, yeah, it's pretty sad. Right. If we see young children having severe anxiety attacks if their phone is taken from them, we're, we're on to something here, right? Yeah. So what can parents do then with the, going back to the dance world with all this we just talked about? What, what's the best advice we can give parents with their dancers, like the adolescent dancer? Um, some basic tips that we can tell them. So, okay, here's what you... You know, we're not going to solve the whole problem overnight by ourselves, but like, what can a parent do to at least help uh, their dancer do their best with this? Well, I think maybe one of the first things would be to help for parents to have a nice sit down with their child about what it is that they love about dance. Let's just start there. What is, what are the parts about dancing that you you love now what now once we've zeroed in on what those are and i doubt they are my favorite part of dancing is checking on social media whether or not people saw what i posted Mm -hmm. that's a stressful thing right and so maybe if we start with like why are you engaged in this activity and what are the good things that it gives you yes obviously if you get a lot of likes on your social media post. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. But what about when you're doing the thing? When you're doing the thing, what is good about doing the thing? And then maybe now let's figure out what are some of the barriers to the good experiences that you have when you're doing the thing. And maybe we can be a little bit more mindful about like cutting back on whatever some of those barriers are, right? It would be so nice if somebody who was asked, what did you eat today? Said, that's none of your business. <laughs> so, but what a strange, I can't even fathom that that would be a question that would be asked. Unless I'm, unless I'm asking them what they're eating today in, in a session, right? So, but, but yeah, no, it's, it's. Wild. It's all that oversharing, right? I mean, it's like yeah. pictures of people at the restaurant taking a picture of their meal. I'm always, I'm always baffled by that. It's like, and usually well, it's not I'm that attractive. Doing it all the time, Steve. I do that all the time. Well, you're doing it to help like, give ideas for things that people can eat. Yeah. I'm talking about a person who goes like Applebee's. Oh, another night with a steak. 
Right. What? Right. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're not doing the the problem is that it's come to a point where if you're not doing it, you're like out of sight, out of mind. That's the problem. So the yeah. problem is like if you're not posting, people are like, oh, where are you? Where have you been? What are you up to? And you have not having an a like social media presence doesn't necessarily concern people. It's just like, are you even alive? <laughs> you know, you have okay, been- well that that's an interesting thing to examine. Totally. It turns out we used to think we were alive based on the friends we have that are in the material actual world. We Correct. knew we were alive because our friends, we in did stuff life. with them. Yeah, in real life. Yeah. Right. So now it's like, you know, you can't, it's, if you're not, and that's the problem, like that, it doesn't support your mental health necessarily to be on this device. It doesn't support mental health to be on this device 24 seven. And so if you're not available or if you're not present, people literally think something's wrong with you. And that's the problem. (laughs) Well, and I guess just to play devil's advocate, maybe something is wrong with you. Maybe we are now at the next major evolutionary step of the human being and that the flesh and blood material body is not going to be necessary anymore. That our existence will be in the cloud. It won't be but that's going to be a problem for the species because we won't have kids. You know, be, there are things we do with our material body that's going to keep us going. But maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the next thing. You have to go to the different farms to make children intentionally just for that purpose to keep the species going. But there's a, there's a movie script for you right there. Yep. Yep. So one last thing before we go, I wanted to cover, we covered so many things here, but one of the things that I thought was interesting in your, in your work and the work you've done in the past is about uh, the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what I wanted to talk about with that really briefly was just a little bit about um, one of the aspects of the menstrual cycle. It, it, first of all, it seems like from the male perspective, we can't possibly understand the concept of having something happen to us all the time as essential for <laughs> the procreation of our species, but yet it's something every month that woman deals with, whether they're pregnant or not. It's like, we just can't comprehend it. But, and so I think part of that ends up being an implicit bias issue as far as uh, helping problems with menstrual cycle, uh, especially when it stops after menopause. Um, So like what has, what kind of work are you doing with the menstrual cycle to help people understand how important it is? Well, I think one of the most important things that we don't seem to be very good at addressing is the taboo, right? From across time, um, whether you are in in a religion or even in secular society, um, and now the feminist in me is going to come out, it, for some reason, this particular body function belongs only privately to the person who does the body function. They are responsible for taking care of it, for spending money on the thing. Mm-hmm. If you go into a public restroom and you've peed or pooped, there, there's paper towels for you to wash your hands. There's toilet seat covers. There's right. But for some reason, we say that half the population, they have a toileting relevant 
thing that happens to their body, but it's private it's disgusting and it belongs to them and you should be ashamed. So you better go figure that out. So for me, the most important thing to do to begin to begin to address the fact that I don't even know how to say this is to just start saying this, just start talking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. It turns out menstruation is a sign of health. It's a vital sign. It's not right. illness. Mm-hmm. We, my organization, the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research, which I was the president for many years, I'm still on the board. We have made tremendous efforts, and maybe one of these days we'll get this to happen. But we want the American Medical Association to consider the menstrual cycle a vital sign. It is among the things that indicates that you not are sick, but you are healthy. If you are in the age range of menstruating and you are not menstruating, that's a problem. Why do we flip it around and say the menstruation itself is the problem? That's, that's, that maybe, that maybe goes back to some kind of strange existential thing that human beings have with blood, right? Males of the species, when they bleed, it's because there's a problem. (laughs) Right. Females of the species have a kind of blood, it's very different from other kind of blood, that happens because they're healthy, not because they're sick. We also yeah. experience pain that is not about illness, but it's about health, right? Many times our periods have pain. And the pain is because the uterus is involved in getting that menstrual blood out just like the uterus is going to be involved in labor and delivery. And I think it's hard for us. I know it's weird for me to bring in the word existential, but I think it's hard for humans. We, we need to understand that there's some kinds of pain that is about health. Mm-hmm. And there's some kinds of blood that's about health. And if we could get there and we could begin to address the taboos, then I think we're in a much better position to have better research, to, to, to just be like, oh, this is what, this is what half the population does. It's weird because there is, I mean, in med school, we are taught so much, so little about what to do. You know, we know about when things go wrong with the menstrual cycle, but it's never framed in a way of, as you just put it, where like, you know, a normal cycle is actually normal. And it should be treated as such. And we look for problems with it, of course, when we're doctors are trying to fix things that are wrong. But like the fact that it does happen does seem have that it does have that taboo against it. And I think the thing that you tied in with pain is amazing too, because all we want to do in medicine, it seems like and that's why the opioid epidemic started in the first place, is to treat pain because we can't have pain because pain is bad. And right. it got marketed to us that any of these kinds of cycles, any of these kinds of sorry, of, of symptoms and problems are bad. But somehow the, menstru- the menstruation of a female has always been tied into that as well from a, uh, whether yeah. it's uh, from the fact that males can't understand it um, versus um, the side of blood versus whatever it is. Yeah. But it does seem that um, a lot of problems occur when we put that off and, and, and make it a taboo because yeah. then insidious diseases can fester and, and grow um, and endanger women's lives. And oh, they have yes. no place to turn yes, because yes. no one understands it. Right. And we, I mean, 
in the in our last meeting of our organization, you know, it's an international organization, we had a lot of sessions on endometriosis. And we have women worldwide suffering from a kind of menstrually related pain that is a huge problem. And it's called endo. <laughs> and until right. we understand the difference between healthy pain and unhealthy pain, we can't we can't even talk. We, right. Right. We have women suffering needlessly because no one talks about any of it. Right. So it turns out there is some kind of menstrually relevant pain that's absolutely problematic. Mm-hmm. And it is it, it's wreaking havoc. But because of the taboos and the silence and the privacy and then all that, um, again, the only way to begin to address the importance of the menstrual cycle to the human experience is to start talking about it. We have to start talking about it. And we don't. And like we we are passing laws about women's bodies that are so that reflect a stupidity about even what this thing is, what menstruation is. You have to know what, right? I mean, we have lawmakers who think that, that this is a terror, I'm going to offend everyone, but we have lawmakers who think that you menstruate out of the same hole you pee out of. That is not true. (laughs) I concur. (laughs) Well, when when you do your research about the human experience of menstruation, do you look into um, what's accessible for, for women as well, like in different settings? Um, so like, like just for like product, when you're at a availability? Yeah, product availability. So like if someone's at a restaurant and there's no yep. products or they have to pay like $5 oh, yeah. to get something, is yes. that the re- that part of your research? Oh yes, too? we so our organization um, sponsors all kinds of movements around the world and the country to make menstrual products more accessible. But also, we have to hold the menstrual product company manufacturers accountable for creating products that are unhealthy, that mm-hmm. are not tested. Uh, mm-hmm. in um, research labs, but instead, most of the femcare brands, and there really are only three globally, um, only do their own internal testing. Um, we know that the kinds of dioxins and, and chlorines that are used to dye tampons white, why do tampons need to be white? What? Are, are dangerous. The vagina is a very, very absorbing, the, the skin of the vagina absorbs toxins very readily. And so that um, interchange between a tampon and the vaginal walls is a delicate, delicate balance. And we are putting things in our bodies that, that may cause disease. And there are all kinds of alternative products out there that don't have absorbency, uh, that we have a hard time um, getting the word out about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people don't want to talk about this, right? So, well, it's it's amazing to think about in those in that perspective because just just the idea of putting things in your body and not knowing what is it's exactly doing to you seems kind of crazy. But I think honestly, Yasi does that deals with that issue all the time with uh, nutrition. So um, it's right. it's what we do to ourselves um, it can be so self defeating sometimes. So. That we cover yes. a lot of those bases today. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
One of the things that our society is a little bit concerned about is this idea that, oh, the only way, the, the most important thing we need is to get products to people. And we hear these stories about girls in faraway places. Girls in Africa are missing school because they don't have pri- Girls in America are missing school because they have their periods. The thing to address is stigma. We have to start there. Then we can talk about all the kinds of product options that can help. It's just a product. Mm-hmm. Once we address stigma, we know here's something that all that half human bodies do. And they need products to enable them to manage this. Mm-hmm. Full stop. We also need to know more about this cycle so that we can understand when someone's is problematic, when the pain is too great, when the pain is a sign of something. Or more wrong. education around the fact that if you're not getting your cycle, there's probably a problem. Yeah. And it's not in, it's not okay. And you yeah. Need to be well, unfortunately, now so many young women are opting for um, hormone-based uh, contraceptives yeah. like the right. IUD that mean the reason they sign up for that is so that they don't get their periods. And we have we do not have enough um, longitudinal data yet to even have any conclusions we can make about what it would mean to have a whole cohort of young women who haven't had periods for years. We, we don't know what that's going to mean for their later fertility or their later. Yeah. Right. There's just so many aspects of the cycle and we definitely need more resources. And I definitely feel like we need more noise around this conversation. And- we need a lot of noise. A lot of noise. And I, my heart really does go out to women who may be somewhere and their cycle hits and they're with a child and they can't do anything about it. And there's nothing accessible to them in that moment. It's just, it's hard. There's a lot of struggles and people don't see it or hear about it because people don't want to talk about it. And at the other end of all of this menopause, it's also just a, a, a very uh, lonely experience, very little information. Um, And again, I think we just need to shout these things more. I try to say to my students, if if my face turns bright red and I need us to open the windows on this winter day, it's because I'm having a hot flash, which this body is doing, right? And they're like, ah, you know, welcome to menopause. That's and that's the thing. There is no welcome package for no. menopause. Nope. No. There is no guidance for menopause. I mean, no. it's it's we were not t- taught in med school. We're not taught anything. Even like gynecologists, just smack a estrogen patch on someone and say, "Well, there you go. Good luck." Yep, that's right. No, I don't. I, I'm I only my education comes from watching my wife go through it. And, yes, um, yes. Right. I that's suffered a period of vertigo attacks only to discover that those were related to the spiky, crazy things that your hormones are doing as you're coming into menopause and that the vertigo was about that. And then all of a sudden I find online all of these menopausal women saying, all of a sudden I was having vertigo. Well, thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you have it. Well, Dr. Tomi Ann Roberts, thank you so much for being on our show today. This has been 
I think we fixed all these major problems. We fixed a few simple problems in the world. I mean, we did menstruation, all females and sexualization, objectification, social media. I think we take, we took care of all these issues, I think today. So I think, uh, uh, we'll look for our Nobel Prize next week or two. Absolutely, we'll, absolutely. And I'll we have to ship to your house. We need the listeners to join in and in, in, uh, in solving this, and then we're good to go. Absolutely. No, it does. It does take uh, the people. You know, the talking about this is is the first big step. I mean, just getting the uh, conversation out there so it's not taboo, so we don't have to hide from this. And, um, and all these different issues we just talked about today. It's, it's it literally is the first big step is to make everybody else aware. And, you know, most folks tend to go with their self-interest in these kind of things. Yeah. I think it's in everybody's self-interest, right? Yep. To make this better. But Tommy Ann, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll talk to you very soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another show. We want to thank Dr. Tommy Ann Roberts for her time today and also thank School Health for supporting our show and making this happen. For Yasi Ansari, I'm Stephen Karajinas, and this has been the Athletes in the Arts Podcast. Mm-hmm.